I need to start this morning with a disclaimer. And that is that everything that is to be written about this guy, Cademan, who we've been looking at today in our Northern Saints series, has pretty much been said in the two-minute video that we made. Not a lot is known about him. The only thing that we know about him is he's the first person to have written any kind of poetry in the English language. But as I was looking at Caven, I was humbled that I actually take it for granted, the fact that we can sing, we can communicate, we can encounter with God through music in our own language. And that sent me down a rabbit hole of other ways that I take worship for granted. And the main thing boiled down to this. The reason I take anything for granted in worship, I think, is because I so often forget about the power of worship. And so this morning, I want us to look at three occasions in the Bible where we see the power of worship at play. And my prayer is this, that we become more hungry, more expectant, and more excited to worship than ever before. So no pressure at all. In Acts 16, we've come to a point in Paul's mission where things are getting really interesting. He's now with Silas and Timothy, and Paul has a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, please come over to Macedonia to help us. And so they board a ship, and they stop at a place called Philippi. Now, Philippi was a Roman colony in Macedonia that had a mix of Jewish heritage and all the cultural baggage of the Romans. So temples, sacrifices, power, all those things. And as you'll probably know, that one of the most important functions of Roman success in the empire was this concept of Pax Romana, which literally means the peace of Rome. And the idea behind this is that as long as you kept yourself to yourself, as long as you didn't spread what you believed onto others and you continue to pay temple tax, then the peace of Rome would be okay. You could have freedom to worship as long as you didn't try to convert others to your way of life. Now what happens is Paul, Timothy and Silas, they meet a wealthy cloth dealer named Lydia. And in the time of these guys, dealing in cloth was a wealthy kind of occupation. And so what happens is they lead this wealthy cloth dealer, Lydia, to Jesus. And they then end up baptizing their entire household. And she's so overwhelmed with gratitude from this moment that she says, why don't you stick around at our house and this can be the headquarters of your operations as you're going out and, and doing mission here which all seems very well and good. But then we have this story that follows, that as they were on their way to pray, which was their custom, a slave girl who predicts the future by an unclean spirit approaches them. And this is where things get a bit weird. She doesn't just start approaching them, she starts shouting at the top of our lungs, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved, which is all true, and a quick side note, all through the Bible, Demons always know what Jesus is up to at any given moment and often recognize his activity long before the priests and the holy people do. The problem is all this shouting is bringing attention to them and disturbing the Pax Romana. And so Paul turns around and prays that the spirit leaves her and it does. Great, there's a miracle, someone's healed, Great story. They all live happily ever after, don't they? Well, no. Because the problem is this slave girl has owners 
who have been profiting from this unclean spirit that's been living in this slave girl. And they're now so furious with Paul and Silas that they grab them and drag them before the judges. And this is their charge. These men are Jews and they're throwing our city into uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. And then we're told that the crowds around join in with accusations and threats. So the authorities order them to be stripped naked and beaten with rods and thrown into prison. And I want to pick up the story there. Acts 6, 25, 33 says this. About midnight, so just a couple of hours after this incident. At about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. Now, God is not formulaic. We can't say, well, God, I've been doing this thing and I've been doing this thing, which must mean that in the cosmic fruit machine of heaven, I get this thing. He is not formulaic, but he is ordered. He is the one who spoke order out of chaos and brings form into lifeless beings. He has an order that seems to run throughout the Bible. When it comes to worship, there seems to be a biblical order of how God brings about breakthrough through his people giving themselves to God. And we want to look at that. So the first thing we see in this whole account with Paul, Timothy, Silas, this slave girl and this jailer is this. Acts 16 verse 16 says, once we were going to the place of prayer. First thing I want to say about worship is there is power in simply showing up. We were going to the place of prayer. If you're at church this morning, well done. If you've had to wrestle your kids to get them out of the house on time for church, well done. If you had an argument in the car and still you decided to park it and then come to church, well done. If you've got exam deadlines looming, well done. If you've got relationship issues right now and actually coming to church is confronting some of that stuff, well done. The rhythm of regularly worshipping is building foundations that when the storms come, your default is not to run away from God, but to come closer to him and worship. The thing is, Paul and Silas didn't go to this place of prayer, hoping that they would encounter a slave girl who was filled with a demon. They just rocked up, and then an opportunity arose. We show up. The second thing we see in this story is they don't just show up, they also look up. As he prays for the slave girl, he says this, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. Sometimes the main reason we are here to worship is because we need to look up and out of our circumstance. 
that it might feel like the waves are crashing against us. It may feel like we're hemmed in at all sides, but we just need to look up and remember that we are people who follow the God of the angel armies, the same one who threw the stars into space, the same one who gives us hope beyond hope and peace beyond peace. We're here to worship and we simply look up. But as we look up, we're also prompted to look out. One of the kicker verses in this passage is this. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. Now Luke, who wrote Luke and Acts, he uses this kind of word, the crowd, to kind of describe anyone who's not in the four walls of the institution of the synagogue or the temple or the holy people. It's just kind of the... Um, if you imagine just the people might think this, the crowd is just kind of the general consensus of the time, normal folk. And right now, we're told that it's those people that start to join in against Paul and Silas. Not necessarily religious folk, not people who have any agenda, but just the tide of the culture of its time is starting to turn against Paul and Silas. When we worship, we need to remember that we are in a battle. And it's so easy in those moments when it feels like our relationships are terse, when it feels like that we um, are being conflicted and confronted with things at work, when it feels like uh, pressure is on us, it's so natural in those moments to think right now, I just need to stay quiet and back down. Because we are hardwired as humans for comfort. We're hardwired to find places of comfort. But we are in a battle we need to expect it. Laura and I, every term that we do Alpha, we realize now that the week leading up to Alpha will be the week where we have some of the biggest bust-ups about placements of houseplants or smelling candles in our house. Or it'll be a time when our kids are particularly aggravating and we need to sort something out with our uh, kids' discipline. Or it might be that there's some family issue that starts to bubble up. We realize that, that we are in a battle and when we were in London, I was involved in setting up um, Alpha in a prison. And on the week that it launched, while we were asleep in the top floor of our house and our kids asleep in the middle floor of our house, someone broke into the ground floor of our house and they stole my laptop, which was awful. They took our car, which was even worse. And worst of all, they took my Xbox and my PlayStation. It was terrible. But the thing is, is after a couple of days of being quite traumatized by this and, and trying to work through how we're going to replace this stuff because we hadn't got content insurance at the time, which was silly of us. We started to realize that, of course, on the week where we're going to set up something that tells people who are in prison, who have committed crime, that they are loved beyond all love they can imagine, that there is a grace available for them, of course, the enemy would want to throw in our path something that would confront that. Something that would make me think, are people who commit crime really lovable? Does my compassion extend towards those people? Because in those moments, as we were going through having been burgled, my heart, my heart could have hardened at any point in that moment. I could have got hard about ministry and hunkered down into survival mode. And it would have been justified. But it's out of that week that Laura and I developed this phrase that now to this day we use so often, which is this, the devil is boring. 
Ultimately, God is a creative force. He creates new things, new mercies every day. His wonders are new every morning. He is the one who creates and speaks life into being. The devil is not that guy. The devil is boring. He's using the same old tactics time and time again. It's why so many of us are caught in the same repetitive sin cycles over and over again. It's not like a new sin is coming up. It's like the same old stuff time and time again. The devil is boring. And so we need to take ongoing battle as a compliment, as people who worship Jesus. We need to take those ongoing knocks as a compliment. Because the thing is, is the devil isn't bothered about people who are going to hunker down and bury their heads in the sand and be quiet about their faith and just keep the Pax Romana. But when you start to break that peace of Rome, when you start to lead others to Jesus, the devil gets nervous and so he starts to throw attack your way. And so as we worship, we realize we need to look out and remember that we are in a battle. But we don't simply just remember that. We also need to step out. And this is the way that Paul and Silas stepped out. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They weren't coming up with an escape plan of how to get out of prison. They weren't coming up with a, 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 um, a, an amazing speech that they could bring out when confronted by the judges. They weren't coming up with some kind of plan, some defense, some legal help. They weren't coming up with that. They were just simply praying and singing hymns to God. And I need to remind us again that we are in a battle. But how we fight in this battle is not by using the ways of the world. We're the kind of people that when the tide is rising up on all sides, when the battle is raging, when the armies are knocking on our door, then our knees get hurt as we pray. Our throats get sore as we sing. Our bellies get sore as we fast and our, and our knuckles get sore as we grip on to the hope that Jesus has set before us. That is how we step out. And then we will see breakthrough. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake. And not only a manifestation of God's glory, but the jailer and his family all come to know Jesus and are baptized. And then we see this beautiful act of reconciliation as he tends to the wounds of the people that he has put in prison and has been looking after. But is this just an isolated instance in the Bible? Well, it's not. We have this amazing story in 2 Chronicles 20. Jehoshaphat is a king who's described in, in chapter 19 as being very similar to David in his walk with the Lord. And at the time, we're told that the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Mayanites have come to wage war against Jehoshaphat. By this time, he's, he's, been, he's set up judges to look after people. He's set up priests to look after people's spiritual needs. And he seems to be leading the people of Israel in a really godly way. And it's at that point when there starts to be trouble around him. Because again, the enemy isn't bothered if he wasn't doing a good job. But because he was doing a good job, because he was leading people closer to, to God, then, then suddenly the enemy gets scared and attack comes. But then their response, how do these people show up? Well, we're told this, the people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. They just showed up. 
that instead of getting scared and, and start to worry about rations and about who's going to go and fight and all this kind of thing, they just showed up in prayer. But then their expectancy wasn't one of how are we going to get this sorted. It was simply looking up and saying, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you, God. And some of us here this morning are in that place. You know, we don't know what to do. The bills that are coming through our letterbox, the diagnosis that's coming through the, the doctor's mouth, the school results from our kids, the pressures that we have on us, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And then we're told that all the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. The best thing we can do for our kids and families is show them what consistency looks like. That at every moment when we're feeling up against it, that our default position is not one of panic, but one of worship. And so we look up. But then they look out. And God says to him, take up your positions. Stand firm. And see the deliverance the Lord will give you, Judah and Jerusalem. Remember, God is saying, you are in a battle. So look out and take up your positions. But he says in the verse before this, you will not have to fight this battle. That I'm putting you in position. I'm reminding you you're in battle. I'm putting you in place. But remember who you worship. Who you worship. The one who has a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And so we look out and then they step out. And the way they step out is this. As the trumpets cry for the battle to begin, we're told this, Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. It's absolutely an incredible response to what is going on. The circumstance of the time, to turn it back to God, say, you know what, let's get first things first. And they don't even just leave it there. They start to create systems to ensure worship is happening. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army saying, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. Now imagine if you were asked to go to war. Then you might look at a room like this and say, well, who goes to the gym? Put your hands up. Who's ever done an archery um, experience before on a red letter day, put your hand up. Who's ever been to that uh, axe throwing club in town? You can go, you can go in the front. Anyone ever shot a rifle? Uh, all of those, you can go in the front. What we probably wouldn't do is say worship team. Do you mind leading us into battle? And not only that, instead, like if you imagine the kind of song that you would send these people into battle, I might pick Eye of the Tiger by Survivor or something like that as we're marching into battle. But the song they choose, while the enemies are up on every side, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. And then we see breakthrough. And the, the story that follows is ludicrous. Because as the people of God are worshipping, as they are singing these songs of thankfulness, as the worship band are leading them into battle, the other three tribes that have come together to fight 
get so confused as to who's on what team that they all kill each other anyway. And we're told that this is the end of the story. The fear of God came on all the surrounding kingdoms when they heard how the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. The Lord had fought because no person in Israel had picked up a spear at all. And the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace for his God had given them rest on every side. Rest on every side. You'll know there's a concept in Jewish theology called shalom, which we translate in our Bibles as peace, but it literally means rest on every side. Rest between us and God, rest between our brothers and sisters, no striving, no pain, but everything reconciled to him. Rest on every side. And so is this just a story that pops up twice? No, there is an order to the way God moves when we worship. Some, a lot of people think that the birth of the church is in Acts 2 at Pentecost. But Acts 2 would be nothing without the events of Acts 1. Now, Jesus has been taken up into heaven. And, and he, he told the disciples before he did that, that um, you need to move from Jerusalem and then go out from that place. So we're told in Acts 1.12, dutifully, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. They simply showed up. They didn't have a strategy of church planting. They didn't have a, a prayer movement. They didn't, have, they didn't know what to do at that point. But they simply showed up. They acted out of obedience and just rocked up, completely unknowing about what was going to happen. Again, if you just rocked up, unknowing of what is going to happen this morning, well done. But then they look up. As they gather, they could have talked about what Netflix series they've been watching. They could have been talking about what New Year's resolutions they've made. They could have been talking about what Bible plan they're doing right now. They could have talked about all that. But instead, Acts 1.14 says this. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. They look up. They say, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know the future that is happening. But right now, in this moment, we need to look up. But then they realize that we're not here just for our own entertainment or our own salvation. We have a job to do. And so they look out and they start to realize that we've got a job to do. Therefore, we're told in verse 22, one of these people here present must become a witness with us of Jesus' resurrection. We need witnesses to go out from this place. It's not good enough for us to stay here and have a holy huddle, but worship always propels the people of God out. And then it says this, a prayer to, to Jesus in verse 23 of Acts 1. Lord, you know everyone's heart, such as which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. We need to step out. We are called to be apostles, called to be people who go out from our buildings and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We step out into our battles, carrying the message of Jesus Christ. And then we find the breakthrough of Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost come, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Real breakthrough. 
real, real revival. Now, all throughout revival history, there has never been a revival movement that hasn't had a parallel move through the worship of its people. Whether it's the Wesleyan hymns that partnered the Wesleyan revival, whether it's, um, whether it's the Pentecostal songs, the gospel music that filled the streets in Azusa Street as the Holy Spirit came in power, whether it's the vineyard songs that accompanied the Toronto blessing, whether it's the music from Soul Survivor and New Wine that has moved a generation to be people who worship, whether it's the music of Bethel or Hillsong as these churches have gone out and they've grown and brought more and more people to come to know Jesus. Worship always partners, revival, and breakthrough, both personal and global. Because the thing is, worship is not simply a traditional activity that Christians do to stay connected to their historic roots. Worship is the vehicle that God uses to bring about personal breakthrough and full-scale revival. And so if we want to see revival in our lives, we have to become people who worship. We have to. If we long to see our city transformed, we have to give our all in worship. Gone are the days of songs of praise, polite Middle England, choral recitals. We have to be a people whose default is to worship. Our response is to worship. Our solution is to worship. Our advance is to worship. Our weapon is our worship. Our answer is our worship. Our passion, our joy, our love, the occupation of our minds, the desires of our hearts is to worship. Not because of what it does, but because of who we become as we worship. People who are consistent in their showing up, pursuing the mind of God as we look up, growing in discernment as we look out, and growing in boldness as we step out and growing an expectation that we will see breakthrough and revival in our city, in our lives, in our time. In Jesus' name, amen.